Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter. If not, you can uh, follow along in an app, or you can turn to your Bible. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, check out the table of contents to find 1 Peter. If you're too proud to be caught looking at the table of contents, just flip to the back of the Bible at Revelations and then turn left. Pass by all the J's, Jude, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and you'll hit 2nd Peter, then 1st Peter. We're going to look at 1st Peter, Peter's first letter. Now, before I, I read the opening of this letter, let me ask a question. What does homesickness feel like for you? Do you remember when you first felt homesick? Maybe it was when you were sent off to summer camp by your parents or to boarding school. Or maybe it's when you left for college or you took a trip to a foreign country and lived there for a while. Maybe it was when you left your family of origin and struck out with your new spouse and you're in your new home, but it doesn't quite feel like home yet. And some of you probably are old enough to have been part of the draft, and maybe it was when you were overseas serving this country in war. We all, in in greater or smaller ways, know what that ache of homesickness feels like, don't we? And as we open Peter's letter and read it today, we're going to see that it's a good mail day. Now, when I was in college, that was the first time I struggled with homesickness. And the best relief for homesickness was a handwritten letter. Now, kids, this is what we did before the days of Zoom. You wrote letters, not in email, but actually by hand. And you knew it was a good mail day when you went to your mailbox, and and in the mailbox was either a care package or a handwritten note. It was a bad mail day if all it was was advertisements and a bill. It was a good hand day. It was a good mail day if it was uh, a handwritten note. And as we open Peter's first letter and read it together, it is a good mail day. This is no cheap advertisement. It's not a bill that's come due. Rather, it is a loving care package, a handwritten note from God delivered through Peter that helps us navigate uh, this lifelong sense of homelessness that God's people often experience. For as we read this letter of 1 Peter, it, it brings together two seemingly incompatible truths, or at least two truths that are held in tension, which is the hope and joy we have as sons and daughters of God and our suffering, on the other hand, our suffering on this broken uh, planet we call Earth. Now, the man who writes the letter is Peter. Peter's that bold and brash one, rather gregarious. He was a disciple who followed Jesus from the beginning of his public ministry. 
He knew Jesus well. He had been there when Jesus had taught the crowds, when he had healed the people. He was witness to Jesus' betrayal and, and suffering, his, his death and his resurrection. Now, skeptics will say this letter cannot possibly be written by Peter, that it must be a counterfeit because it's, it's just too well written. Uh, for someone who was like Peter, you know, a common, uneducated man. Um, and, you know, I admit, and, and commentators admit that, that that would be a really good ex- objection if it were not for the fact that, that the skeptics of Peter's day, the uh, religious elites, the Sanhedrin, already cleared up the matter for in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it is recorded when they, those religious elites, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Even the elite of Jesus' day, of Peter's day, excuse, excuse me, were, were just astonished at how well-spoken and how he could communicate so clearly and passionately. And so we can take confidence as we read Peter's letter that it is a good letter day. This is a real letter from the man himself. It's not a counterfeit. It's from the one who knew Jesus best. So let us dig in. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, for those social media users among you, if we were to translate the main message of this text into Twitter speak, it would be hashtag blessed. Because God's blessings are always trending, even when we fail to perceive them or to sense them. And and God's blessedness is constant and real, no matter the circumstances. And in his introduction, Peter summarizes the blessings of God to us and the blessedness of God in himself. And this is going to form our two-point outline this morning, and we'll hit some sub-points along the way, but the two points are, blessed be you, elect exiles, and secondly, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as always here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, we look at the text in its original context to discover what it says and what it means and how it generally applies, and then we want to do the hard work of figuring out, so what, how does it apply in my context, personally, specifically, and practically? So first, let's look at the first point. Blessed be you. Let's look at this blessing at the end of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, as Dr. Walker said last week, that Paul opens and closes all of his letters with grace and peace to you. Well, Peter does so too. 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace, grace is being a recipient of God's undeserved favor. It's not something you can make yourselves worthy to receive. If you could, it wouldn't be grace. Grace is undeserved, merited, undeserved, unmerited blessing. And peace, now the peace that he's talking about here is not merely, you know, being mellow or kind of having an internal sense of there's no strife in my life, but, but this is God's peace. It's lasting, it's deep, and it transforms the full spectrum of reality for God's people. And this transformation that brings peace or of peace flows from the inside out. It begins spiritually and psychologically, and it moves into the relational, and according to God's end game as described in the Bible, this peace becomes physical and ultimately cosmic as we experience the shalom of God in a new heavens and new earth, the peace of God. Now, this blessing of grace and peace, it's not static, it grows. Notice it says, grace and peace multiplied to you. The remarkable nature of the blessings secured through Jesus Christ is that they yield exponential returns, not diminishing returns. They are multiplied blessings, not divided blessings. God's grace is not a zero-sum game. They stem from an inexhaustible source and they overflow. But notice also who is blessed. As he's talking about this multiplying grace and peace, he says it is to the exiles of the dispersion in verse 1 in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, the dispersion is a term used to describe the scattering of God's people, those dispersed abroad, away from their true home, and in Peter's context, these are the followers of Jesus, and they're scattered because of persecution. And... Living life as a Christian has not been easy. In fact, it's been difficult, and it's been difficult for some time. They are spiritually tired, you might even say exhausted, because they've discovered that the Christian life is not easy. It's full of challenges and difficulties, and it has been for some time now. And so with a brief phrase in the opening of his letter, Peter gives a biblical corrective that serves as a compass for living as followers of Jesus in this world by saying to the elect exiles of the dispersion. David Helm says it this way, life is difficult, but the harsh truth, but this harsh truth has not always been understood by those following Jesus Christ. Many Christians today have trouble sorting out the complexity of their identity and calling in Christ. They were reared to believe that a Christian should only experience the joys of being one of God's elect. They have been taught nothing of our exilic state. And Paul's letter will teach us much about the exilic state that we experience as followers of Christ. You know, the, the reality is, is that if you're a Christian, this world is not our home. It is broken in many ways, in every way. You are broken. All your relationships are broken. Every community is broken. And we often are called to live in circumstances that are not of our own choosing 
How many of you are in a circumstance right now that you wish more than anything you could be delivered from? You just want to take a pass. How do you respond when God calls you into exile? Do you live in denial, thinking a Christian should just always be happy? Do you live in depression? This passage is given to us so that we can see that God has something for his people as he calls them into exile, as a, as a displaced people. Now notice how the exiles themselves are described. Peter calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. In other words, they're not faceless, they're not nameless, they're known, and they're chosen for this journey, and they're dispersed, they're elect exiles of the dispersion. And though they were being driven out by persecution, which is the reality they could see and perceive, God was not asleep at the switch. He had a plan for their exile, for their wandering. You might even say he was calling them to an adventure. Their exilic state was similar to that of Abraham when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go into a new land, a land that God would show him. And they too, the people that Peter's writing to, were being called out from their own home Well, all that they knew that was familiar to wander about until God would bring them into a new home, a promised land that they had not fully taken possession of yet. They would someday, but presently, they only caught glimpses of it. C.S. Lewis described the sense of homelessness that every Christian experiences this way. He says, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache of homesickness. How does this apply? If you seek to understand the Christian life, you must reframe your picture of the blessed life. First, you must recognize that the aches and pains you feel in life, you have to recognize those things for what they are, homesickness. The blessed life is blessed because it knows that this life, this fallen world is not our true home. And like Abraham, we look forward to something better. But presently, that blessing of a better home yields an ache, a restless longing, a homesick soul, making the blessed life a bit complicated. For on the one hand, it's not bad to feel homesick. It confirms that our real home is truly a greater place, a better place. But on the other hand, homesickness is not fun. It's not pleasant. It's not easy, even when you're called to live a new adventure. And secondly, only as you embrace God's call into this temporary exile will you rediscover your courage and maintain your hope and joy for the journey through the wilderness. See, Peter's letter is written to elect exiles who are exactly where God 
wanted them to be. God had placed them there. God's blessings and mercies and peace are multiplied to elect exiles of the dispersion, to those ultimately called by God to places where they were dispersed and where they did not want to be. God's blessing and mercy of mercy and peace were multiplied there even though for most of them it was a result of persecution, the fact remained that it was all according to God's predetermined plan. Look at it in verse two. He says, all of this is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Notice each member of the Trinity plays a role, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the calling of elect exiles to where they are displaced to. Their calling is according to God's plan. He is sovereign over all of their circumstances. In other words, their desperate circumstances, their exilic state, had nothing to do with being down on their luck or out of luck. Rather, it had, to be do, it had to do with being in the Spirit. As it says here, in the sanctification of the Spirit. It's about being under the Spirit's direction and leading and purpose. For He is the one that leads us into suffering and through it, into wandering and restlessness and longing and through it. And what we yield from it are hard, but real blessings. Real blessings that are given during this exilic journey. And they're given not randomly, but they are personally bestowed. And they come with a purpose. And the purpose is that we might learn obedience to Jesus Christ, to the one who left heaven and came down and lived in exile so that we who are exiled may have a true home. And as we follow him and take up our cross, we learn obedience and we are matured and strengthened in Christ and cleansed from our sin and our pettiness and our small-mindedness as our vision expands for God and his kingdom. And so take heart Whatever you're going through right now, whatever journey, wilderness journey you are going through, there is meaning in it. God the Father has planned your journey. There is value in it. You will be refined by the Spirit, sanctified by Him, molded and made. And there's a purpose. You will learn obedience and be purified through the process. And not only will you be redeemed through the process, But as little Christ, living in tough places, you become light in very dark places. You become the salt of the earth, the hope of our world. As you do the work of Christ, representing him, living for him, offering his grace and truth, his hope and his promises, and reminding people that their true home is with God and calling them to be reconciled to him. And as they are, that peace begins in them spiritually and psychologically, and then it begins to change their relationships. And one by one, the kingdom of God grows and the world is changed. 
And so this is the blessings of life in the exilic state for the children of God. If you seek to understand the Christian life, you must reframe your picture of the blessed life. You must recognize that the ache you feel is a homeless, is, a, is the ache of homesickness. You are not home yet. And second, you must embrace the adventure of living in exile in a fallen world and in circumstances of, that you would never choose for yourself. So that's the first point. Blessed be you, elect exiles. The second point is blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And blessed be this God for three things, for what he has done, for why he has done it, and for how he has done it. Now, when seeking to comfort the ache of homelessness uh, among the people that, people that Peter is writing to, his immediate focus is to train their thoughts on their heavenly father and to bless his name. He, Peter doesn't call, he doesn't call them to ruminate on their problems. That would only exas- exacerbate their homesickness, not heal it. Nor does he feel compelled to, del- to tell them how to conduct themselves while wandering in a foreign land. Rather, the first thing he does, the primary thing he does, is he calls them to bless God's name and to praise him, wherever they may be. For Peter knows the redemptive power of worship. David Helm says it this way, when you bless God in Christ, you come home. When weary followers of Jesus begin blessing and praising God, encouragement is sure to follow. See, such praise, it's like hearing one's national anthem when you're living in a foreign land. It's a clarion call that transverses the rough terrain that separates you from home. And it brings you home, heart and soul, when you hear that anthem. And it encourages you and uplifts your spirit and gives you great confidence and reminds you of your identity. And so this is Peter's focus in his letter to pen the words of God's anthem to homesick souls who are wandering in a foreign land. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the anthem declares And he says, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for what he has done. Look at what he's done in verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Well, what's this living hope? He clarifies it in verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, Now, this is domestic language, the language of home. The inheritance is being kept in heaven for you. It's being safeguarded and preserved, and it merely awaits your homecoming. And what is this inheritance? Three words describe it. Imperishable. That means it's not able to be destroyed. Undefiled. That means it's not polluted or corrupted. Unfading, that means it's not subject to decay or disintegration. See, he's not just piling up words. These words have real meaning and distinction that clarify the beauty and value of the inheritance that God has secured for us and keeps for our homecoming. Imperishable. In 2015, I traveled to Israel and I was struck by the apparent transience of human life. 
At Megiddo, I saw thousands of years of human culture buried in layers of dirt. You would see, you know, Bronze Age, one and two, then the Iron Age, one and two. And each of these, which, you know, were a couple inches of dirt, represented spans of centuries, epochs of time, and, and they all perished into the rubble. And we see that, and we see the apparent transience of humanity all around us. And then we regularly contrast that with the seeming permanence of the cosmos, of the stars, of the earth, of even man-made buildings. Like, this building will be here after we're all long gone. But John Newton declares the permanence of our inheritance in Christ through that famous hymn, Amazing Grace. When we sing, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Because our inheritance is imperishable, but more than that, it's undefiled. Now, it's hard to imagine a world that is undefiled, one without sin, without abuse, without neglect, without hypocrisy, without protests and riots, without utopian aspirations that constantly devolve into tyranny, a world where every parent sleeps without fear and every child is cherished, a world where every woman feels valued and safe and every man is honorable. It's hard to imagine such a world For we live in a defiled world and everyone has dirty hands. And some with dirty hands, well, they act brashly. But others with dirty hands, they act charmingly. Some are cunning. But the reality remains that all have proven to be corruptible. All have fallen short. All have dirty hands and dirty hearts. All except one. And in Revelation 5... God, there's a picture of God sitting on the throne with a scroll in his hand, and and many scholars agree that this scroll, when when revealed, declares the meaning and purpose of history. It's, It's God's great plan that makes sense out of the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it secures our inheritance and brings it to completion. But the scroll is sealed with seven seals, and no one is worthy of opening it because they all have dirty hands and dirty hearts, and so John weeps because it it appears that no one has the ability to open the scroll. That is, no one has the ability to interpret it and to carry out the plan of God. But then, John hears one of the elders tell him, John, don't weep. And then he looks, and behold, there's a lamb looking as if it had been slain who comes forth and opens the scroll Seal after seal after seal. And the whole assembly erupts into glorious thanksgiving and worship and says, worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals for you were slain and by your hand you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that lamb that was slain is none other than Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus able to open the scroll and interpret God's plan for all of history and bring it to completion? And it's because of his redemptive suffering while he endured exile. 
He left his heavenly home, and the New Testament shows us that every kind of evil was thrown at Jesus. The worst that human and non-human powers could bring against God could bring against him. But Jesus was incorruptible, so the defiling powers of sin and evil backfired. And that's not just an irony. That is the ultimate strategy for how to defeat evil. Through the exile of Jesus, evil is defeated. Now, according to both the laws of nature and the ceremonial laws of God, we know that there's something called contagiousness. And the way contagiousness works is that that which is sick contaminates that which is healthy. And that's why even this morning... We have people with masks on, right? Because there is a direction of contamination. That which is impure defiles that which is pure. But when Jesus came, he changed all that. He was incorruptible, and so he remained undefiled. And when the impure touched him, he wasn't made impure, rather he contaminated them. So when lepers touched him, their leprosy couldn't contaminate Jesus. Rather, they became contaminated with his health and wholeness and they were healed. Only Jesus withstood the defilement of the world and was able to, able to make the impure pure. And as king, he secures for us an undefiled inheritance for his people because everything he touches is cleansed imperishable, undefiled, and last, unfading. Peter describes our inheritance as unfading, meaning it's, it's not subject to decay. Now, as a middle-aged man of 46, I'm sensing the need for this personally, more and more. My hairline is receding, my eyesight is fading, my strength is failing. My older children can now beat me in a long-distance run. It's embarrassing, it's terrible. My body is, is slowly continuing the inevitable descent back to the dust. But the inheritance kept for the followers of Jesus, those who are connected to him by faith, is unfading. Because we are united to Jesus by faith, our bodies will be like his resurrected body, unfading, free from the deterioration of and sickness, and disability. This is our inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. No wonder we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done. But it gets even better. For then he answers, well, why did he do it? Verse three, he did it according to his great mercy. That is why he's caused us to be born again. He did it not because of anything uniquely remarkable about you or you or any of you or me, but only because of his loving compassion and mercy. And like an infant who does nothing to be born, we do nothing to be born again. An infant is born as the result of an overflowing love and a parent who labors, a mom who labors, although dads would say they sweat too. But so too the Christian is born because of a God who loves and labors. 
It is important to remember why the blessings of our Christian inheritance are granted. It's, it's not only to keep us humble upon receiving it, but it's also to keep us confident in obtaining the full reality of it, the full promise. Yes, we don't deserve it, but this inheritance is promised to us, and it's freely ours, and our ability to obtain it, to arrive safely at home, is rooted in God's mercy, and it's grounded in one great truth. That we are born, born again into God's family to a living hope. And how so? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is how he's done it. And that's our third sub-point. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only for what he's done and why he's done it, but how he's done it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the grounding of our inheritance. His resurrection is the first fruit of our great inheritance. It's the appetizer of the eternal feast in heaven. It's the preview of what we shall all become because we are connected to him by faith. The resurrection not only shows us how God secured our inheritance, it serves as an anchor for our hope. And so as we rise up and bless God for what he has accomplished for us in Jesus. We pull on that anchor of hope again and again. It is an anchor of living hope from a resurrected Savior. And as we pull on that anchor, that anchor keeps us from going adrift in the sea of despondency, disillusionment, and despair. Now, this does not mean that we're not allowed to grieve or to weep over the brokenness in ourselves and in our world and in our relationships, or that we don't grieve the loss of our physical vitality with fading age or with sickness. We certainly grieve everything that is broken and robbed and defiled by sin and death. But it does mean that when we grieve, we grieve with hope. For we look to an inheritance that will never be destroyed, never be polluted, and never be subject to decay again. And we know that it is kept by one who is not only merciful and loving, but is powerful and faithful. The one who defeated death, the ultimate destroyer through the cross, he is the one that keeps this for us. The one who overcame the defilement of sin and proved incorruptible. He is the one that keeps it for us. The one who progressed out of the grave with a resurrected body, never again to be subject to decay. He keeps it for us. The Savior secured our great inheritance. It was promised by the Father. It's guaranteed by the Spirit. And as we're united to Jesus Christ... It's yours. It's mine. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. The hope that this world, as beautiful as it is, is not our final home. And Lord, as we, as we walk through it, as we live in it, we, we, we sense the defilement, the brokenness of this world, it leads to more and more disillusionment and disappointment. It leads 
to fear. It leads to weeping and grief. It leads to a sense of homesickness as we long for something more than this. And we rejoice with the hope of the gospel that like Abraham, we are given a great promise that there is a new home, a promised land. And like Abraham, he actually lived in the land, but it wasn't his, not the way it would be. And that gives us great hope that the land we receive, it's, it's this creation, only it's made new. It's, it's not yet how it will be, and so it's not yet ours. We long for that day in a twinkling of an eye when all things are made new, when every river and every valley and every mountain and every, every cloud is redeemed and changed in an instant and made incorruptible. And when our bodies are made like that so we can enjoy you and enjoy the creation you have made us to delight in and return to the garden and walk with you in the cool of the day. That is home. And so, Father, we bless your name for this great inheritance, for what it is and why you gave it to us. You gave it to us, even though we didn't deserve it, but because you're merciful and gracious. And we rejoice that it's secured through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's finished, it's ours, and so we can look forward to it. I pray for any here that haven't heard this good news before, transform their hearts, bring them into this kingdom so that they can know this home can be their home. And for those who are suffering and they can't wait to get to the next home, strengthen them to grieve and to endure while they yet linger here and to do so with hope. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.